1 Thessalonians 5, verse 15, title of the message, simply Christian Attitude. Um, last week, we did not end up preaching a message. It was a very, very small group, and my wife and I were um, quite under the weather, so we had a little devotional in time of prayer and um, kicked the message over to this week. In our evening services, the past two in particular uh, in 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul has focused upon the happenings of born-again believers within and among the local church. He's been speaking to believers specifically. He spoke first about how they should treat their pastor or pastors, how they should love them and consider them. Then he spoke about how they should treat one another the idea being that they warn the unruly. You recall in verse 14, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, and be patient toward all men. In verse 15, I believe Paul remains within the context of the local church interaction. And then, uh, in verse 16, he might debatably turn a little bit more individual. Perhaps still... Um, could definitely still be uh, church, local church focused. Now you've noticed that we've slowed down dramatically over the past several weeks. We got through 1 Thessalonians 1 through 4 pretty quickly. And we've slowed down quite a bit. And I felt the need to do this of necessity as much of what Paul says here is interrelated. However, each point is quite distinct. Each verse, these short little verses are quite distinct. And there's so much in them that is worthy of our focus and our consideration. So we have slowed down, and that for good reason. I'd like us to begin this evening in 1 Thessalonians 15 by considering the verse itself. And then we'll branch out to a broader topic or broader topics that are spoken of um, and presented in the Scriptures. 1 Thessalonians 5.15 says this, See that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. Paul begins in this verse by saying, See that none render evil for evil unto any man. The concept of rendering evil for evil meets with mixed emotions and mixed expectations in Christian circles. And this is due to what I would call seemingly contradictory remarks made in the Bible concerning the philosophy of rendering evil for evil. Now, we know that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, that it is profitable, that it is infallible, that it is inerrant, that it is perfectly preserved. So when it comes to any matter in Scripture where we perceive there to be a contradiction, this is what we know right away. We know that, there, that, that the problem, the perceived contradiction, is not actually a problem with the Bible. The perceived contradiction is not actually a contradiction. It is a lack of understanding or a misguided interpretation of the text. In other words, the problem is with us. It's not with God's Word. And we take that on faith. And if you can remember that, if you can have that deep down that you know that the Word of God is, according to its own testimony, inspired and inerrant and infallible and perfectly, perpetually preserved, then even if you don't understand how two Scriptures reconcile one with another, you can have the confidence of knowing that they do reconcile whether or not you understand that. Somehow they do. And typically speaking, 
if you go look at um, wise men of the past, men who have written and studied and prayerfully uh, taught for years, there you will find someone that has the answer. Someone who the Holy Spirit has illuminated to at least a reasonable explanation of how the Scriptures are not contradicting one another. So let me first present this evening the, the apparent contradiction. And I'm sure it's one that you will uh, be familiar with, one that you will identify with. And then we'll talk about why it's not a contradiction and what the Bible actually has for us to do. So it all began with the law of Moses way back in Exodus 21. We talked a little bit about Exodus 24 and Exodus 28 this morning. Uh, in Exodus 21, the Bible says this beginning in verse 22. If men strive and hurt a woman with child so that her fruit depart from her and yet no mischief follow, he shall be surely punished according as the woman's husband will lay upon him. And he shall pay the judge as the judges determine. And if any mischief follow, then thou shalt give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burning for burning, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. And if a man smite the eye of his servant or the eye of his maid that it perish, he shall let him go free for his eye's sake. And if he smite out his manservant's tooth or his maidservant's tooth, he shall let him go free for his tooth's sake. So we read in these few verses a philosophy, an undercurrent, and one that um, pervades many aspects of society, many aspects of people's interaction, and it was very deeply rooted in Jewish history even up to the time of Jesus Christ. And that philosophy is an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, right? The idea being that the punishment fits the crime, and if somebody does something to you, you do something back to them in turn. The principle is reiterated in Leviticus chapter 24, verse 19 and 20. And if a man cause a blemish in his neighbor as he hath done, so shall it be done to him. Breach for breach, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. As he hath caused a blemish in a man, so shall it be done to him again. And again, I reference you to Deuteronomy 19, verses 18 through 21. And the judges shall make diligent inquisition, and behold, if the witness be a false witness, he hath testified falsely against his brother. Then shall ye do unto him as he had thought to do unto his brother. So shall thou put evil away from among you. And those which remain shall hear and fear, and shall henceforth commit no more any such evil among you. And thine eye shall not pity him, but life shall go for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. We'll come back to this passage in a moment, but, but this is the, a philosophy that was deeply rooted in Jewish law. The idea of a hand for hand, a foot for foot, that a punishment fits the crime. Now you're sitting there thinking, well, pastor, already, do you see the contradiction? Paul teaching says, let no man render evil for evil. And here we see all of these Old Testament teachings that say eye for eye, Tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. What's going on here? And this contradiction became, and we'll see it in a little bit, strikingly apparent in Jesus' teaching. Because the Jews had elevated this eye for an eye principle to uh, great heights. And Jesus was eager to correct them on this. You say, well, Pastor, why, how is this not a contradiction? Well, let's consider the other side of the coin. 
Leviticus 19, which by the way occurs five chapters before the Leviticus teaching about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, we see this in verse 18. Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. Wait a minute, Pastor. In Leviticus 19, we see God say, you will not avenge yourself. In Leviticus 24, we see God say, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Pastor, isn't this a contradiction? What is going on here? Have you solved it yet? Twice in the Proverbs, we read the same principle. Proverbs 20, verse 22. Say not thou, I will recompense evil, but wait on the Lord and He shall save thee. Don't recompense evil, He says. Wait on the Lord. Proverbs 24, 29. Say not, I will do so to him as he hath done to me. I will render to the man according to his work. Don't say that. Don't say I'll do to him like he did to me. Don't say an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Wait a minute, but this is God's command. So where do these principles reconcile? What's going on here, Pastor? How can God say an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, and also say don't avenge yourself? Well, the answer is most clearly understood in the Deuteronomy 19 passage. The Exodus 21 mentioned it as well. So let's look at Deuteronomy 19:18 again and notice what it says. And the judges shall make diligent inquisition. The men who were given authority to render eye for an eye a tooth for a tooth were were not just men. They were designated legal authorities over the people. After a diligent search, having considered the testimony of all involved and considering the evidence involved, God expected these judges to mete out a consequence of a man's wrong by a given offender of equal and just punishment to the crime that he committed. And if you were to go back to Leviticus and you were to go back to Exodus, you would find the same thing in those passages that the principle of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is not a principle that God intended for interaction between individuals. It was a principle that was commanded to authorities for civil and criminal punishment of offenses against another man. In other words, the government has the responsibility to mete out a just and appropriate punishment according to the nature of crimes done one against another. And interestingly enough, this has been a real problem for governments, hasn't it? The idea of a punishment fitting its crime. If you look at the law books today in the United States, you will find that relatively minor offenses face egregious criminal charges. A person could murder someone and be out in a matter of years, but if a person sells Drugs, they could be in prison for life. I mean, it's, it's not a just weight and balance. There is an egregious offense, and that's what God was referencing when he's talking about an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. He's as much saying to civil authorities, make sure the punishment fits the crime, as he is saying, make sure the offender is punished. And that is the eye for an eye principle. The eye for an eye principle is civil authorities, Criminal authorities, judges, 
those who have gone through a process of recognizing who has offended who and in what way, make sure the punishment fits the crime. But God never, ever intended this principle to carry over into your interaction with others. God never, ever intended the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth principle to become the way that individuals interact one with another. God never intended you to peek over the fence at your neighbor and say, well, look what he did. I'm going to do that back to him. God never intended you to see what your sister or brother did to you and say, I'm going to, I'm going to get them back, boy. That was not God's intent with the eye for an eye principle. It was for civil authorities having the authority delegated by God to punish the evildoer. We've seen already in the Old Testament command that it is intended that God, uh, by God to direct our actions as individuals. And the commandment that is intended to direct us is thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. In fact, the whole of Jewish culture, as we've mentioned, built upon the eye for an eye principle, the idea that a man could justly, before law, do unto someone as it had been done unto him, was quite wrong in Jesus Christ's eyes. Jesus told them in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 38 through 42, Ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Jesus said, this is what's been taught. And when he uses that phrase in the New Testament, ye have heard, that phrase is intended to be a phrase of correction. He says, this is what you've been taught, but this is not what is right. This is not just Jesus upping the ante here. This is not him saying, well, it used to be an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, and now I'm going to give you a different idea. This is Jesus saying, this is what you've been taught, but it has been incorrect. This is never what God intended for your interaction with others. And Jesus is now going to present what is right for individual action one with another. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. If any man will sue thee at law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain, that meaning two. Give to him that asketh thee. From him that would borrow of thee, turn not away. God's design for his followers is that of abject humility. So much humility that you will not resist evil when it's done against you. When a man would, would seek evil against you, that you would not do evil back to him in turn. That you would have an absolute surrender to God's capacity to judge and to vindicate and to protect. And thus we should, in interaction one with another, have no compulsion towards vengeance. Our interactions should always be compelled by deep forgiveness and love. God said in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 35, to me belongeth vengeance and recompense. Their foot shall slide in due time, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things that shall come upon them make haste. God says, I'm the one that, that brings vengeance. I'm the one that will recompense. And the day is coming when that will take place. You don't have to worry about vengeance. You don't have to worry about eye for eye, tooth for tooth. You don't have to worry about getting 
being vindicated because God will vindicate. God will mete out justice. And we can trust Him to do that. Paul used this along with Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5 to give a command in Romans chapter 12, verses 19-21. through 21, And he said this, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in doing so, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. There it is. That's our charge. It's our privilege. Are you chafing? Just a little bit at that. Be not overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Can you trust God to avenge the wrongs done against you so much so that you will not avenge the wrong yourself? Can you yield your right to be treated fairly and justly to God and to the God-ordained institution of government, which God, by the way, has ordained to avenge you, to protect you? That is the role of government. Now, whether or not they do it is debatable. But Romans 13.3 tells us that the biblical responsibility of government is to punish evil and to reward good. They've been given the right to punish evil. They've been given the right to an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. They've been given the right to take a life for a life. Capital punishment is biblical. And quite necessary, in fact. But only given to government, not given to you, not given to me. We have, we have no right as God's followers to avenge ourselves. Vengeance is not your responsibility. And may I take it one step further? Vengeance is not just not your responsibility. If you don't mind my double negative there. It's not your right. It's not your right. We Americans, conservative Americans, tend to have that streak of vigilante justice that's baked into us a little bit, don't we? If someone crosses me, if someone hurts me, if someone hurts my family, if someone hurts that which is mine, they will answer to me. They will have to go through me. They'll have to deal with me. But let me just say it plainly. And I struggle with this myself, and those of you who know me know this. But as I read the Scriptures, I can find nothing biblical about that attitude. I really can't. I can find nothing biblical about a vengeance attitude even if it's just theoretical. By following after vengeance, we abdicate our God-given responsibility to be men and women of peace. Isn't that one of the, the pieces of the armor of God that we studied this morning in Sunday school? The feet shod with the gospel of peace. And instead of being these men and women of peace, we take upon ourselves and our own pride perhaps some manner of self-righteousness, a privilege that even our Savior Jesus Christ did not take upon Himself. You realize that? Jesus was beaten and bruised and scorned and mocked and He had done nothing wrong. If any man deserved to live out the eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth principle, it was Christ. And yet, as they were screaming, if you be God, come down off that cross, He looked up and He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. 
And the reason why he didn't is because God's will says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Jesus knew that it was God's prerogative to bring vengeance, not his. Even as God, he was submitting himself to the will of the Father. Jesus sought no vengeance because he was perfectly submitted to the Father's will. And if we are submitted to the will of the Father, we will not seek vengeance either. That's a really hard pill to swallow, Pastor. I know it is. But the pill is not hard to swallow because God has not given us the grace to swallow it. The pill is not hard to swallow because it's unattainable. It's hard to swallow because in our human flesh, we want vindication, don't we? We want vindication. Our faith perhaps is not strong enough to believe that God can vindicate us far better than we can vindicate ourselves. Those of you who have been through it know how hard it is to suffer scorn. Know how hard it is to deal with difficulties for your faith. The mocking. Sometimes the outright abuse for your faith. But the man who believes God's word is a man who will not seek vengeance, not seek eye for an eye, not seek to recompense evil upon those who have done evil to them, but will rather seek to do that which is good. So let's take a few moments as we continue to consider the idea of not rendering evil for evil, and let's just pinpoint what is vengeance. What are some of the ways that vengeance can be meted out? Well, we think of physical vengeance. Man does something to you physically, you do it back to them. The idea of seeking physical vengeance for the wrongs done to you. And oftentimes when we think about the eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth principle, this is what we think of, right? That if a person does something wrong to me, I'm going to do something wrong back to them. If a person hits me, I'm going to hit them back. If a person kicks me, I'm going to kick them back. If a person bites me, I'm going to bite them back. Um, that sort of an idea. But rendering evil for evil goes far beyond just physical vengeance, doesn't it? And if we put it in that box, then we're putting it in too small of a box. Evil can be done in multiple ways. As it relates to family and friends and church members and acquaintances, acts of evil and acts of vengeance won't always take physical form. Think about a church. Now, I know in some families, physical violence and such can, can, can still be a reality, but in a church setting, you don't often see things digress to fistfights. But does that, not, does that mean that there's no evil going on and that there's no evil being rendered for evil? Well, those of you who have been to church for any amount of time know that that's not true. That people can get nasty, passive-aggressive ways, undercurrents, all sorts of things. So let's talk about other ideas of vengeance. What about unforgiveness? Isn't unforgiveness a form of vengeance? We talked just before the service about stubbornness, right? The idea that somebody's wronged me or I don't want to do something, so I'm going to hold out. I'm going to seek to hurt them in some passive way. Unforgiveness is when we refuse to release others for the wrongs that they have done to us. And, you know, when somebody actually is seeking our forgiveness and we are withholding it, it's another thing if they... they it, there's two different ideas 
with unforgiveness. The first is in our hearts, whether or not we're willing to release them in our hearts and thus interact with them in a biblical way. But the second concept of unforgiveness is when a person seeks our forgiveness, actually physically seeks it and we withhold it from them. When we withhold forgiveness that another is seeking, why are we doing that? To punish them, is it not? We are seeking to punish them for the perceived or real wrongs done against us. Unforgiveness is a form of vengeance. Make no mistake. Whether or not they have asked for it, we know. We've talked about this several times. The Bible makes it clear that forgiveness is essential. And the verse I always go to with forgiveness, Ephesians 4.32, And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. I may sound like a broken record here, but let's say it again. If God has forgiven you of your sin while you were dead in trespasses and sins, before you deserved it, you never will deserve it, before you asked for it, without ever being worthy of it, it is little more than pride, self-righteousness, and disobedience, a false sense of vengeance that you would seek to withhold the forgiveness of others who have wronged you when God has forgiven you everything. But unforgiveness is a form of vengeance seeking. When you look at somebody and say, I will never forgive you, or it's going to take a while for you to be forgiven of this one, is that not some form of vengeance seeking? What about unholy validation? I call it unholy validation. Pastor, what do you mean? by unholy validation. What I mean by this is an attitude in any relationship where the wrongs done against you become a validation for you to do wrongs against others. An unholy validation. He went out and spent money on that. So, because he went out and spent money on that, now I'm going to go buy that thing that he said I couldn't have. Right? I have just used the fact that somebody else did something that I perceive as wrong to validate my own wrong against them. I have just used their failings as a spouse or as a brother or sister or as a parent to validate my failings or my sin or my wrong. I am going to validate or and, and perhaps even seek to hurt them by doing something I know is wrong and validate hurting them because they hurt me first. She gossiped about me to my friends, so I'm going to tell that whopper to the guys tonight. Right? I'm going to embarrass her because she first embarrassed me. That church member disagreed with me just to spite me, so now I'm never going to agree with them on any issue ever again. I'm going to be their constant chafe, their constant opposition. I don't care if I agree with the issue or not. They're not going to get a vote from me. Isn't that just us validating our sinful actions through vengeance? I got passed up for that job promotion, so now I'm going to stop working hard at my job. If they're not going to promote me, then I'm just not going to work hard. Is that not an unholy validation of our poor performance? Seeking to avenge the fact that we were not given a privilege against our boss? by not working hard anymore. Probably got passed over because you never worked hard to begin with if you've got that kind of an attitude, right? 
I was treated like scum when I was the new guy, so now I'm going to treat the new guy like scum. That's a pretty common one, isn't it? Initiation type idea. I had to go through it too, so now you're going to go through it. We see it in the military. We see it in colleges. Everybody has to be the freshman at some time type idea. Everybody has to be the new guy. Treat the new guy like scum, and then the new guy becomes not the new guy anymore, and the new, new new guys come in, and you treat them like scum, right? It ought not be among believers. It really ought not be. We ought not be like that. Because isn't that some form of vengeance? I'm going to treat others bad because I got treated bad in the same circumstance? I'm going to punish you for how others have treated me? The list could go on, couldn't it? Of the ways that we validate our evil actions against others in some form of misguided, unholy vindication, vengeance. The next attitude I'll highlight is what I'll call vindictive spite. Now, vindictive simply means revengeful. So everything that we're talking about tonight could be vindictive. But when I speak of vindictive spite, I'm talking about things that are even worse than this idea of unholy validation. What I mean by vindictive spite, and perhaps you've seen this before, is because someone has done something to you, you go out of your way to ruin them. Have you ever seen someone actually seek to destroy someone else's marriage or seek to get someone fired because of, of some way that they've been wronged or perceived wronged against someone? A guy does something to you, okay, I'm going to do whatever I can to get him fired. They plant evidence, they um, lie and manipulate to get someone fired or to, to break up a marriage, destroying people's personal property in anger. Uh, they did that to me, so in the middle of the night, you know, they, they let their dog uh, make a mess in my yard, so in the middle of the night, I'm going to go collect everyone's dog mess from all their yards and pile it on his, in his backyard, that kind of stuff. I've seen it. If you've worked in the secular workplace, you've seen stuff like that. It's vindictive. It's spiteful. It's ugly. And it's absolutely unrighteous. This is another one. Let's just, let's just singe everyone's fingertips this evening. What about de delighting over the suffering of the wicked? Is this not a way of me delighting because it somehow validates some vengeance in my mind? Our president slips as, we get off, as he gets off his jet and we laugh and we laugh and we laugh and we say, oh, serves it right, yeah. Well, because of whatever real or perceived wrongs our president has done against us, we're seeking vindication. A wicked celebrity or singer dies in a car crash or plane accident or overdose of some drug, which is unfortunately common in that industry. And we say, there we go, serves him right, gets what he deserves, wicked man. New Orleans gets hit by a big hurricane and we say, ah, good wicked city. God is, is showing his vengeance and we even, we even bring God into it to, and, and, and we, we, in some way, deep in our hearts, delight that this wicked city has been hit by this terrible disaster. And all I can say to that is, how dare we? How dare we delight in the suffering of others? 
one day that man, those people, those in that city will stand before God and vengeance will be his. We can rely on God when they stand before him on that day to be the great and terrible God that we know him to be. Didn't we read it? Don't we read it all the time in the psalm? The psalmist saying, they have done evil against me, but I will look to the Lord. I will trust in the Lord. Lord, break their teeth. Lord, cause them to fall into a pit. The idea being, God, you will avenge me. So God, avenge me. But what right do we have to vengefully rejoice over the suffering of the wicked? What right do we have to that? It's very difficult biblically to reconcile the way Christians treat our government officials. First Peter tells us to honor the king. The leader of our country is not a godly man. The leader of our country does not love God. He does not love Christians. He has no loyalty to the things of of the word of God. But do you know what our Bible tells us to do? Honor the king. And when we we rejoice over the suffering of the wicked, are we not in some way just feeling some vindication? Ha. Ha ha ha. Ha 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 ha. Right? Let him have it. We could list more types. We could cite more examples, but we really don't need to. I think that the Holy Spirit has a lot to work with this evening already. So the Bible says, see that none render evil for evil unto any man. And any man. Opposed to all of these attitudes, our intentions, is the Word of God. And specifically the passage which we consider to get today. No matter the context, no matter the person, God does not want you taking vengeance into your own hands. It is not your responsibility, it is not your privilege to do so, and to do so is to disobey God's Word and God's will for you. Much rather, what does God expect of you? But ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. Paul would say, as we read in Romans, that we overcome evil with good. Ever follow that which is good. Counter their evil with your forgiveness and love. Counter the evil of your awful, spiteful relatives. Counter the evil of your ridiculous neighbors. Counter the evil of that church member with good. Counter their spite with patience, understanding, and kindness. Counter their violence with prayer, humility, and deference. Is that not what Jesus taught us in Matthew 5? Look what he went on to say in verses 44 to 48. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Why? That ye may be children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh the sun to rise on the evil and the good. Do you realize that? Do you realize that it's not just pockets of sun hovering over Christians? That when the farmers go out to do their crops, it's not just the Christian farmers that get the rain? 
that God's blessings, that, that free grace, that, 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 that general grace, we might say, in this earth, that God has poured out upon this earth, making the rain and, and the, the, the seasons and the sun to rise and set, is poured out as much on the wicked as it is on the good? Is God not just as faithful in a physical sense to the wicked as He is to the good? And sendeth rain on the just and the unjust as it continues. For if, if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? Are you any better than anyone out there on the street if you simply love them that love you? Doesn't the most wicked man in the world love those that love him? Doesn't the most wicked man in the world render good to those that have done him good favors? Doesn't even the wicked world around us operate on the you-scratch-my-back-I'll-scratch-yours principle? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be therefore perfect, he says. Even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. But pastor, that's so unfair. Was it fair that Jesus Christ sought no vengeance when they nailed Him to a cross? Was it fair that Jesus did not open His mouth when false accusations were brought against Him? Was it fair that He was beaten and scorned for sins that He never committed? Was it fair that He was forced to cry out, My God, My God, why hast Thou forsaken Me as the wrath of God against sin was poured upon a man who had done nothing wrong? Was it fair? It wasn't fair. And thank God it wasn't fair. Because if you got what was fair, do you know what, what you'd get? You'd get an eternity in hell. If you got what was coming to you, if God operated on an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth principle, you'd be in hell. If you got what was fair, you would have no hope. How self-righteous is it if we as believers... Start talking about what is fair. Jesus Christ has taken our penalty, paid our debt. We stand clothed in His righteousness and we dare talk about people being unfair to us. What must that be like to Christ? To hear that. He, know, he knows that people are treating us wrongly and there's coming a day of vengeance, right? He will come in on a white horse clothed in truth and righteousness and vengeance will be His. not ours. But opposed to that, I can tell you something else. I can tell you what a lifestyle of goodness and forgiveness is. And it's found in 1 Peter 2.20. Peter says this, For what glory is it if, when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye take it patiently? If you do something wrong and you get punished for it, what glory is that? You did something wrong, right? But if, he says, when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. The life of forgiving, loving, goodness, and kindness, the life of that kind of a man, even in the face of evil, is the life of a man who's pleasing God. It's the life of a man who will have eternal rewards waiting in heaven in place of the temporary and minimal happiness that comes from a man getting vindication. 
and it is acceptable to God for this reason. The reason why this attitude is acceptable to God is because this was the attitude, attitude of his son, Jesus Christ. A man who, when he was reviled, reviled not again, the scriptures tell us. A man who did not render evil for evil. A man who left vengeance in the hands of to whom it belongs, and that is God. When you follow after good, doing good to those who hate you, loving those who wrong you, forgiving those who hurt you, you look just that much more like Jesus Christ. You are conformed just that much more to the image of our Savior. And God is pleased. We all have work to do tonight, don't we? We are all guilty of loving vengeance just a little too much, aren't we? Brothers and sisters, how often do you act toward one another in vengeance? Unforgiveness, unholy validation, vindictive spite, delighting over suffering. Now, praise God that in believing families and among believers, particularly in this group, I thank the Lord as I was meditating on this this week and praying and such. This church is special. To this point, the group that the Lord has given to us is a, is a group of believers who um, we haven't formed cliques. We haven't pitted certain people against others. It's not like that in this church. By God's grace, the families that come to this church, it's not like that in your families, immediate families. I know with many of you it is with your extended families. Husbands and wives, how often does some sort of a vengeance creep into your interaction in marriage? Unforgiveness? Unholy validation? She did this, so I'll do that. Vindictive spite. I know she hates that and I'm, I want to get her back, so I'm going to do that. Delighting over suffering. Ah, got what you had coming to you there. Employee. How about United States citizen? How often do we operate under the law of vengeance instead of the law of Christ? Unforgiveness. Unholy validation. Vindictive spite. Delighting over suffering. I don't know where the Holy Spirit has placed His thumb in your heart this evening or if. I know some of your struggles, but only some. I know my own weaknesses and needs and my own struggles in this issue. But may I encourage you, whatever the Holy Spirit has convicted you about this evening, your thinking on this matter of vengeance, your actions toward friends or family members or church members, would you get it taken care of? Would you humble yourself before the Word of God? Would you see that you don't render evil or, or even think, intend, have a heart that's willing to render evil for evil unto any man, but rather you would ever follow that which is good both among yourselves and toward to all men? Would you confess your sin to God, repent of it, and determine to ever follow that which is good? And in doing so, what I'm really asking you to do is through humbling yourself before the Word of God just to become a little more like Christ this evening. Let's pray together.